and welcome to Genre Stop, the podcast where we read and review genre fiction. You're here with Bree, me, a lover of all things speculative, and Scott, a skeptic of all things speculative. This week, we read K.J. Parker's Purple and Black. A slim volume, finally. This 2009 fantasy novella tells the story of the short reign of his divine majesty, Nikephorus V, brother of the invincible son, father of his people, defender of the faith, emperor of the Vesani. I love it. We should say right now, I love all royal titles. In anything I read or watch, anytime they do that, I get goosebumps. Well, it depends if you're reading them 45 times or not. Because are these details important? Probably not. But they're repeated that often uh, in this work because they comprise the headings of Nikephorus's official correspondence. And this is an epistolary novel. So we see those often. The recipient of the emperor's letters is Formio, a university friend of Nico in the years before his unlikely accession to the throne, and now the appointed governor of the northern province of Upper Tremesis, tasked with dismantling a growing, seemingly unstoppable and mysterious insurgency. Time is of the essence here, for the killed violently in a coup rate for recent emperors is pretty high, and lingering instability on the northern frontier doesn't bode well for the already shaky foundations of Nico's reign. The novella then unfolds as a back and forth between Formio in Tremesis and Nico in the capital. To maintain secrecy, each writes two letters, one penned in bland officialese, tersely detailing the major happenings. The other is a longer, more discursive, digressive, personal assessment of the situation, grounded in the couple's friendship, mutual in it over our headedness and frustration. And there, and thus, are purple and black. The former messages are written in purple, and the latter in black ink, reproduced in the work itself here. So there are the pieces, and for such a breezy book, a lot actually goes down once Parker starts moving them around. Formio loses battles and wins battles against the freedom fighters. Nico reminisces about what a good time he had with his friends in college. <laughs> oh, by the way, he thinks, what happened to that one friend of ours, Gorgias? After he was drafted, we thought he died. Turns out he didn't. Hmm. Oh well, nothing to see there. And if this setup seems a bit dense and dour, Parker's tone dispels the notion. His prose is alternately jocular, colloquial, and familiar, a jarring and potentially polarizing affect. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on the writing in this regards, Bree. Well, uh, by the way, you guessed it. We eventually learn that old Gorgie has been spearheading the insurgency all along, waging battle against the Empire in the name of the idealism, egalitarianism, and proto-anarchism embodied in the group's drunken college revelries. Turns out, Formio's been in cahoots the whole time as well, and by the end of the book, the, the two are marching on the capital with their insurgent army, ready to depose Nico, resigned and yet resolute that their adolescent politics don't actually translate to good governance. There's a bit more, but I'm sure we'll cover it in the course of our conversation. And as you can see, the major themes are basically screaming right at us anyway, so there's no need to go over them here. So let's just start then at the start, Brie. This is an epistolary novel. Mm -hmm. How do you like them as a form? Okay, well, I really like reading anyone's diary, you know? So I just like... <laughs> that goes into anything. It's probably started with my sister through a string of boyfriends through like if you had me over for a dinner party at your house and we were just acquaintances like I'm gonna find it 
Um, she was really ruthless, though, as a commander. <laughs> my sister? Yeah. She would have been. So that basically extends to my feelings about reading letters. I like it. There's something like innately saucy and intimate to it. As far as I was trying to think of other epistolary novels I've read, and not just novels that have epistolary pieces in them. Mm-hmm. That one Jane Austen one, Lady Susan. That's the Jane Austen. I've, I've, I feel like there's like a Jane Austen canon, and I've never heard that one. It's not included because I think it's part of her like Is juvenile writings. Of, oh. uh, no, it's a it's a it's one of hers. What's it called? It's called Lady Susan. I think this is not a Jane Austen book. The thing is, like, Jane Austenites right now are just like, they're not going to believe anything you say for the rest of the podcast. All right, there's Northanger Abbey. There's Sense and Sensibility. I mean, seriously? Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) You think I'm wrong? (laughs) So 100%. I mean, I don't know if it's counted as a novella or a novel, but it was her earliest one, and people think it's, like, part of her juvenilia. But it's good, you know, and it's about this, like, slutty coquette. Slutty coquette. (laughs) Jane Austen was always kind of writing about herself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I remember reading that one and liking it, but I, ha- I haven't read many. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's a, it's a relic of that era. So yeah, I will say, uh, so I was excited to read it for that reason. I would say, hey, if people want to put out more epistolary novels, I'll read them. As far as this, I thought this story couldn't have existed in the same way without the form. Mm. Um, when you were saying your description, I got the feeling that you like felt that Gorgio was like the leader of the insurgency <clears throat> the whole time. I was fucking flabbergasted. Like it couldn't have surprised me more because I remember I was reading along. I was reading. And I was thinking, okay, like is Formio trustworthy? You know, mm-hmm. there has to be mm-hmm. some kind of unreliable narration going on here. Mm-hmm. But after a while, I started to think that maybe I don't know. I just. I thought even if Formio was betraying him a little bit or misrepresenting things, I didn't expect the like full-scale rebellion. Yes. And when it came, then because I had only been reading their letters, I felt like it felt like Formio wasn't just betraying Nico. I actually felt like he was betraying the reader and me, and I took it really personally. So I was actually, it really worked for me, and I was sort of like galled and moved and interested. This is interesting. I mean, this totally corresponds to your general monarchism and like royal apologetics here. <laughs> they side but, with Nico automatically. Oh yeah, <laughs> like the fact of gainsaying the emperor in this way is like grounds for execution. Well, look, I absolutely wanted it to end with Nico executing Formio. Sadly, in a like when that shakes the barley esque brother versus brother way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I was a I was aware of that impulse in myself because I was thinking early on, like, Nico's, like, the most nepotistic ruler in the world, right? Like, he's from a corrupt family, he becomes emperor, and then he immediately puts his prep school best friends <laughs> in, like, so all the main positions. Right. But, I, but I, I sympathized with him because of some other stuff. But before I get into that, um, what did you think of the form? And did you feel the betrayal coming the whole time? No, I didn't feel the betrayal, but I, there was, and I don't know if this was earlier or later than you, but there was a moment when I knew it for sure. Lamachus? Who's Lamachus? Lamachus, the steel neck who writes the one other letter we get. No, it was before that. Well, no, it's different. Lamachus told me that, I mean, obviously that Formio was in on it, but I knew before that once he started digging into what happened to Gorgias Mm. and like trying to find out had he died in the battle tracing him like where to go i'm like oh, okay he's obviously heading the insurgency um i mean but that's it was still like out of the, out of nowhere for me it worked 
pretty well. Yeah, I thought it worked great. Okay, so let's just say that right now. I thought the turn worked great. Yeah. I was not that into the book until the turn. Oh, interesting. I mean, I was into it, but I was like, all right, that jocular tone that you mentioned. Uh-huh. Um, I started to think a little bit like, fuck, can we not get away from teenagers? Or right. like, you know... Although it even won me over in how how deeply affectionate it was. Between the two of them? Between the two of them. Like, it felt like a real, um, I don't know, maybe that's another, like, well, I, I guess, I mean, this is modeled on Rome, right? Am I wrong? No. Or, I mean, it depends. <laughs> you wanna... I was imagining, like, basically Gorgio is, like, Caesar, and he uh, says he's going to, like, make shit better, but he's actually just setting himself up to be emperor. Right. It's modeled, basically, on the Byzantine Empire. <sighs> Like, there are a ton of emperors named Nikephoros. Tell me all about it. But it's stupid. I mean, all you're doing is, like, you're giving them Greek names. Like, I don't know. Why? But they mentioned the Senate and stuff. I thought they just made, like, it's... gold-flecked mosaics. I thought that was all that happened. No, they actually just made huge hedge mazes. <laughs> Impossibly difficult to get out of. Um, all right, putting apart the historical piece, obviously I don't know. By the way, I feel really out of my... I don't feel out of my depth. It makes it sound like this book is Ulysses, but like I, <laughs> I do feel a little bit like there's a certain set of words or like there's a vocabulary that I'm supposed to have to be able to talk about this book that I don't have. Like, what is it called if a book is clitoris? <laughs> if a book has a lot on like military shit. Like, what is that called? You know, like so a term that means a book that deals a lot with the military. Is there? I feel like it's called like a military. Hmm. A military novel? I don't know. Looks like you don't have the word either. <laughs> I don't think the word exists. I think it does. Because I read about um, K.J. Parker, and we should get into his crazy anonymity, which was revealed last month, if Wikipedia is correct. We have... Oh, you did, see, you did some research. I googled. I wanted to see if K.J. Parker is a man or a woman. I thought right. it was a woman, I will say, so he tricked me. When yeah. I saw that it was revealed after 17 years last month, I thought, like... <laughs> What fucking like website has Scott been reading every day? <laughs> He's like, so excited to do this. No, I mean it was primarily like the thinness of it that was appealing at this point, right? After reading a bunch of disappointing doorstops, it's not the worst thing to have a small book in which like the plot still turns just as decisively. Yeah, I thought this was highly readable. Yeah. Okay, but back to that tone in the beginning. Um, Wait, we got to figure out this military word. It seemed like some of his other books and ones I looked at mu- were much more like dealing with dry, mechanical, military mm-hmm. material, the mechanics of making weapons and stuff like that. This one, did, I, I didn't get that tone. There wasn't anything. Some of the descriptions of battles seemed kind of like battle by numbers. So like it seemed like that might be military-ish. But otherwise, it seemed kind of nothing too like specialist. Okay. Yeah, I thought so too, except maybe because I'm more sensitive to it because I immediately black out whenever like, a military maneuver is described. It happened a few times. I guess there were a couple. Um, Sometimes the battles were like that, but they were done quickly. Some of the more potentially tedious parts I actually found interesting that seemed like they could have been a place where someone would say like, oh, just like get out of the weeds here. But when Nico was describing how he's trying to trace backwards the history of like the armor that the people were wearing in order mm. to find out who these insurgents were. I thought that was kind of inventive. And even like when he was trying to track Gorgias's tale, saying, We know he was in this company, twenty survivors here at this battle, but then they went to the ship and ten survived there. And mm-hmm. I mean I thought that was kind of I thought it I mean that part wasn't interesting to me, but I took it as like a <laughs> 
I took that as almost filler that was nice enough to read that made me that made the story more believable. Mm. Like, you know, so it's not like just them being like, I love you, I love you, I love you. Right. And all right, on that note, what did you think of their friendship? Did you believe in, did they seem like friends? Mm, no. This goes back to, I guess, yeah, maybe my thing is, I, I think I liked this. The ending helped. I went back and forth sometimes. Sometimes it did make me like chuckle almost against my wishes. Oh, like along with them? No, no, not like, like, oh. <laughs> like I'm the third <laughs> wheel here. I'm, <laughs> Like, invite me over to the party. And, like, one time you said catapult science instead of rocket science. Like, I'm not a catapult scientist, and I laughed at that. <laughs> I don't know. That one got you. Yeah. But otherwise, the tone was really uh, disengaging for me. Yeah, there are any number of passages we can point to. <laughs> and they stick with me. He's calling them. One time, when he's talking about going to the university, he said, like, I felt lucky to have, like, joined up with the coolest of the cool. Literally saying the coolest of the cool. Formio and... Nico kept calling them the insurgents baddies like the baddies are doing this and the bad guys are doing this and it was diminishing for me in terms of the narrative and sometimes they're like playfulness it's kind of like veep if anyone's watched veep like I think some people think just the fact that someone's calling another person like a like a pussy-lipped rat motherfucker something like that like the joke is just in being like vulgar not even in being vulgar but like saying something like oh mean and weird and it's that's not like a joke to me it's not funny um so i didn't really buy the friendship because it seemed very writerly and like someone trying to write a comic novel so just i mean for example the very first lines you are of course an unmitigated bastard there's a certain type of person who i think like likes that and um it's not me i mean you actually just articulated kind of this feeling i had about the tone in the first half of the book so well in that it was just too writerly. It felt like you could, you could almost see someone workshopping it. <clears throat> so that was the feeling I had until the turn. Until a little bit before the turn, actually. When Formio wrote his letter about, the, about finding Gorgio dead and that kind of grief-stricken passage, I mean, I thought that was actually kind of moving and that felt like he was actually talking to his friend to me, that letter. Um, you know, he said at one point, he was describing why he had lied to Nico and not told him that he knew Gorgio was dead. And he says, And that's why I couldn't bring myself to tell you or send his journal that Gorgio, of all people, died angry and afraid and in despair. I had to read that book, Nico. And it, it got me, and then I felt like there was like a real communication between them. But once I found out that Gorgio was alive and that that whole letter was invented... Then I felt like I didn't mind the way the letters had been earlier because, like, Formio's like a sociopath. Formio's lies were so detailed and intricate <clears throat> that I actually felt like, okay, like, these letters have seemed really simple and have actually made me think I'm reading letters between teenage boys. But once the turn happens, I feel like the minds behind the letters, Formio's mind, um, is actually sophisticated and really manipulative. And so it made me read those differently. It's interesting. Although Nico's still sort of a sad sack. Right, right. that's kind of the way I would come at that and say, I think you're almost giving it too much credit in that. Like, it, I think he does want you to go back and read those first letters differently, but I still think he wants you to think, like, I'm being funny here. Mm -hmm. Not like he's hiding something beneath the otherwise, like, off and, I mean, like, avuncular tone of Formio. And the other point is, I love just getting your kind of, like, reactionary politics out of all of these. Like... <laughs> Like, Formio, who's, like, a freedom fighter, like, driven by his consciousness. I love that you say 
<laughs> you're being called a psychopath. Like anyone who would turn their back on okay. Meek as a psychopath. Well, Formio said very clearly why he's doing this. He's saying, I, I feel like we've turned our back on our ideals. And there, you said that there wouldn't, if you were ever emperor, that you would abolish the 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 hereditary monarchy and return power to the Senate. I agree. And but only a psychopath would, would fight. First of all, first principles. of all, I've been pretty honest about my my bias. <laughs> this our whole podcast. I'm obsessed with emperors and kings. Right. But I mean, I think that actually gets to that. This book is, in a way, becomes a dialogue between idealism and experience, and youth and maturity, mm. and yeah. the fact that it that it ends. I mean. I actually loved that moment in one of the final letters when it's Emperor Gorgio is and it has that long title. That being there made up or justified all of those headings, preambles. When you get to the first one where it's not either of them, I guess other than that one guy, uh, and it's Gorgio. And I guess for the listener, he's also doing this for these very idealistic reasons, right? He wants to go in with the insurgency, remove Nico, and you know, give power to the people or whatever. And then the first time you hear from him is in his own voice. It's as Emperor Gorgias. Yeah, and Formio is addressing him. And I actually loved in that one that that was we never hear from Formio again after that. It's addressed to him. It says what's happening on the battlefield, and then there's no personal message. And I feel like that is such a like such a response to that kind of like idealism and zealotry that like ultimately it's like cynical silence. Oh, I took it. Not as cynicism, but as like... I, I meant cynicism on the part of like the writer. Like what we're to feel at that. I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But where you also felt that Formio was um, let down. That Gorgias yeah. just... Oh, that Formio thing. had been compromised. Right. Like I believe that Formio did... I believed in Formio's idealism, whereas Gorgio I thought was a <clears throat> like more of a fanatic. Right. And he even says in the, in the end, the last letter with Nico and Nico ask him those three important questions, and mm. Formio admits that he wanted to be emperor all along, but only to get these reforms through. Right, And right. then Nico does say at the end, like, I've heard that, you know, nothing is changing, nothing's getting done. All right, you're calling me out on my, <laughs> my whatever that is. Does get to the main thing that I did, I did love that I felt like there was a real grappling in Nico's, Nico's response letter to the declaration of war from Formio. The declaration of war that is so couched in affection and terms of friendship that I was moved by it, him saying, like, you know, do this with us, you know, like, we'll get there and then give it to us. I thought Nico's response to that was like, <laughs> it's funny, in my notes, I wrote this and then I wrote a question mark next to it because, like, I'm not saying I'm obsessed with this book, but I thought it was like a, a brilliant response. <laughs> Wait, from Formio? No, from, from Nico. Nico. Like, I thought it was, I thought it was beautiful and I thought it seemed so sad and, like, he was really. And, like, he really did consider it. Like, he considered that maybe this was right, you know, and that, and that maybe he should side with them and should give away his power. But then he gave those not totally convincing but stirring anecdotes about how kind of disturbing stories of his grandfather and how he learned now that he was emperor looking through documents that his grandfather had had death warrants made out for all of his sons but one and then wanted them made out for all of his grandsons because he wanted to avoid civil war that much. Mm-hmm. He has this piece where he says, but he was prepared to kill his own sons and grandsons to avoid evil, and for pity's sake, Formio, he was right, and grandmother was wrong, and she's responsible for the, ten- for the deaths of tens of thousands. That was his way. He was a steel neck, and so was my father, his brothers, my brothers. And you know what, Formio? If you do this, you'll be a steel neck too. And then I'll read this, because I loved this part. Had they done the inauguration yet? 
where they make you stand on a shield and four captains lift you up and all the soldiers whoop and holler. My personal theory is that's when it happens. That's when the brain and heart die. When they lift that shield, it doesn't matter who you were before. When they raise you off the ground, you become something else. A bit like my crazy predecessors declaring themselves gods, I suppose. It's weird because even that story of his grandfather, his grandfather sounds like a fucking psychopath. So you think like, is that the family I want leading the throne? Mm -hmm. You know, this person who's killing his own children. But then I just got the sense that Nico actually understood the responsibility of what he was doing and what war meant in a way that they didn't. I love kings. <laughs> I wish we had a king instead of a president. And my last note on this letter, because I did love his letter. I love that he ended the whole thing and they declared war on him with uh, Gorg... Oh shit, we've been calling him Gorgio. You have. It's I've been saying Gorgius the whole time. I'm sorry, I'll call him Gorgon. Gorgius, when you read this, I want you to know something. I'm so glad you're alive after all. That's the main thing. Which just gets back to like... I feel like Nico, of all of them, is just like once a friend. <laughs> well, you can't just, you can't say on one hand, five seconds ago, Nico's the only one who understands war <laughs> and what it takes to rule and is the best ruler and he also just wants a friend. Like, oh, okay, so what did you think? Did you think that the insurgency was justified? Would you have sided with them? Did you think Nico should have sided with them? I mean, I feel like it's a real, it doesn't give you... While I sympathize with Nico, I feel like it would be easy to sympathize with Formio. I didn't sympathize with any of them. No, I don't know. I think I was kind of affected by the tone through the first 60 pages. I didn't feel like this was a world that made sense, that was coherent. So I appreciated some of like the work that was being done with the characters, moving them around and stuff, and surprising us with the you know, injection of one into the intruding upon the narrative. I don't know. I mean, and I liked the way that he did that sometimes. I, I, I liked the undertone of so you understand what the insurgency wants and you also understand their anger at Nico and just arbitrary rule in general general and also you see some of this in Formio's talk about what they used to talk about and even within I liked it in his search for figuring out what happened to Gorgias you get a sense of the roles of Emperor already affecting him like, the whole, the expenditure, the resources, he's obviously wasted. And he hints at it. It's really underlying that whole thing. He does reference torturing people a few times. Torturing people, but also the amount, like, he re-dug up a massive grave on a battlefield mm -hmm. to find out, like, who has, just to, like, did my friend survive? And I think that was, that was supposed to be there. Just that he's, like, already abusing or taking advantage and accustoming himself to the power that he has here. Mm -hmm. Agreed. That was there too. I mean, I loved it because I was like, yes, accustomed to yourself to the power. You earned it. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was a nice turn once you realize that like, he's doing this all to find the person who's like ultimately saying like, hey, your power's unjustified to begin with. Are there any women in this whole book? There are no women in this book. There's no magic in this book. No, I wouldn't live in this world. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I don't know that much about Byzantine history. Lots of, I, so I don't think there's anything. I'm imagining this as like ancient Rome, just in my imagination. Right, right. That's what this is. Um, would I want to be a Roman noblewoman? I think I would still take today. I mean, I would do, I assume my role would actually be insignificant because I'm a woman, so I, I get nothing. It's hard. There, there are no women at all. They're not mm -hmm. even alluded to in this. Are they? That's what I'm trying to say. I don't think there are any mm -hmm. women. There's one line where um, Nico is talking about responsibility once he learned of the betrayal and he says formio when when you were like chasing the girl next door mm. i was afraid that my brothers were going to kill my dad yeah i don't know i'd go hang out at the university <laughs> wait would would you join the insurgency 
Oh, God, I'm not joining any insurgency. <laughs> You're not? No. You know Gorgias just wants to take rule for himself. Okay, so you do know that because I feel like when you, you know, when you criticize me for my <laughs> royalist sympathies. You're mistaking criticism with observation. But all I'm saying is like, at least I'm taking a side. I'll be head for me on myself. <laughs> You're the one who's like going to be like criticize both sides and then go disappear in a corner of the university. Yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> that one that one philosopher they love seemed like he was doing all right. I liked, I mean, thinking of that philosopher and his little, what it was morality, right? Was his, what he was talking about. I did like one thing that did convince me of their friendship in a way that I guess you weren't convinced. Um, I got the sense between them. You know how like good friends can sort of try out big, sophisticated ideas with each other without having to preface it with, obviously, I'm not a philosopher or I'm not an expert. I don't know what I'm talking about. But they can talk about big things and trust the other person to like kind of go there with them and be okay. Mm-hmm. I felt a lot of that in their talks about like morality and rule and death, which they had a lot of before the betrayal. I felt like their ideas weren't very sophisticated, but <laughs> I believed the way that they were talking about it with each other. What do you think? What is what is the big theme here? I mean, I, I eventually thought like, oh, it's kind of along the lines of that excerpt they read from the philosopher. It is about evil and and who does evil and when whether you need to or not. And if power is evil, yeah. And if power in itself is evil. So like the representative thematic passage on seventy paragraph. Stesichorus, who's the philosopher. Stesichorus wouldn't like it. Men like Lamachus are quite definitely an evil means to a good end. I'm writing this in the chief clerk's office because my study is just across the yard from where the general is conducting his interviews. Torture. The theory being, if I can't hear it, it's not happening. Nice theory, but I fancy there's a fallacy in there somewhere. Men like Lamachus save lives by taking lives. They prevent cruelty and inhumanity by inflicting it. Men like us let them because it's for the greater good and because we're afraid that if it wasn't done for us, we might find it in our hearts to do it ourselves. Yeah, that last line, because we're afraid that we would find it in it in us to do it ourselves. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a kind of interesting take on it because the implication is that like evil needs to be done, which is you know obviously questionable, but that different types of status and position in society shield people from having to deal with that. And these people are shielded from it because they come from wealth and, and privilege and they can hang out at the universities. But like, shit, now we're in a place of power and we have to like deal with evil. And so like, in a more refined way, the question that basically all those people are asking is that trolley one, right? Like, you know, do you kill one to save five? And that's basically, however misguided that assumption is in the context of like war here. I mean, yes. Just like yes to that whole thing. I, f- I felt that. Oh, I'm a woman. I can only feel things. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I got goosebumps with those thoughts. But I couldn't really flesh it out. I couldn't really get beyond the idealism versus realism feeling. But that I think that passage totally is the most representative of the book's philosophical interests. Right. I think so. And that goes back into exactly what you said about that story about Grandpa, right? As he says there on 100. Um, he was prepared to kill his own sons and grandsons to avoid the evil, the evil of like massive civil war. And for pity's sake, Formio, he was right. And grandmother was wrong. Grandmother had wanted to like, obviously like not kill her children. Grandmother was wrong. And she's responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands. I mean, a pretty bold statement there saying, mm-hmm. right. Let's just put it like this, Scott. Serious question now. This is a lot like the movie with Cameron Diaz, where would she push the button for a million dollars? But it's mm-hmm. a little Something different. About Mary. <laughs> okay, 
right now. You have to go in the other room of the office where we are. <laughs> and you have to shoot three people. Or 300 I'll, people. I'll take the first one. You'll, you'll kill three people? I don't even need to hear the second one. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot how bloodlusty you are. Yes. Um, okay, so what did you think of the final letter in which... Are you going to finish the... Yeah, or would you, <laughs> would you have 3,000 people be killed, shot in the head, point blank, just the same, but not by you? I would do the not by me. You would let 3,000 people die instead of kill three yourself? Mm-hmm. Fucked up. I think that's where the consensus is starting to fall on that trolley problem, right? Morality is like individual and like you, everyone deals with themselves. So someone, someone's killing those 3,000 so they can make the decision that I did. Right, but you're not thinking about the 3,000 people. No, I'm saying someone's killing them if I don't, if I don't do it, so... I don't want to justify that. So you're just trying to keep your conscience clean. But that's what I'm saying. So this is the crux of like the that argument you're just saying. Like one, yeah, one cynical one saying like other people are shitty, and the other one's like idealistic. And so it's like, like everyone tend their own gardens in a much darker way. Um, so what do you think of the final letter in which, which is by Nico, in which he's been blinded? He's been blinded, sent off to basically a monastery, mm-hmm. and like to live out his life while Gorgias rules um i liked it as a conclusion i mean he got to deal with whatever vestiges of their friendship were left i felt like i wanted a little bit more from it and it was just silly anyway because like you said like my sense is that like nico really liked these people as his friends and they didn't really care about him i did i mean it made me sad that the big three questions he asks are he asks if uh gorgias always wanted to be emperor and he says yes and then he asks if he would have done it if it was any of their other friend group. And Corio like, sidesteps. And then he asks if they only hung out with him because he had money and bought drinks. <laughs> I mean, that made me sad that that's what he had to think about in his blind stupor. Sorry, blind people. I know you're not in a stupor. <laughs> you might be contradicted by the things she said right before that. I liked the one moment, it was, I think it was parenthetical in the letter, in which he said, um, but in case you think I'm adjusting well to this formio, I'm not. Like, I wake up every day and think, why can't I see? And I panic, and then I think, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it speaks well to the novel after the beginning. Like, you've been able to pull out some nicely written spots. And, I mean, considering how slim this was... I do, yeah, you kind of said in the introduction, I think there was a lot here. Yeah, yeah, I think like, I think so as well. Compare this to the 8,000 pages of Assassin's Apprentice. Oh, God. <laughs> From Fitz to my, my wriggling bitch pup. <laughs> Since I've made you governor of the eastern provinces. Okay, so you kind of mentioned at one point that, like, there's no magic here. Does anything differentiate this just from, like, vague historical fiction for you? No. No? To me, this was historical fiction with made-up places. Hmm. How about you? Something about maybe the broad strokes in which in which everything was painted seemed kind of like indicative of fantasy. Like we didn't... Historical fiction seems like it would have... It would feel a need to fill in gaps based on people's knowledge or something. And this was like very happy to say like, hey, you can imagine like he's in one place, he's in the other one. Here are these weird insurgents. I mean, I think that has more to do with the form... Than the novella, as it because there wasn't much space. Uh, no, I meant the epistolary novel. Oh yeah. Um, and I liked that there was never like a, a page that wasn't a letter. Right, right. I... All right, so let's talk about the cover. Cringe factor. Cringe factor of the cover. Purple and black. What do you think? 
You first. It's not the best cover. It's actually kind of amateurish, right? The drawing is like of ring wraiths on Lord of the Rings. Frodo puts on the ring and the world disappears. And oh, people yeah, yeah. Are it's like a little blurry misty. at the sides. and yeah. yeah. It's not the worst. I give it a three out of five for cringe. Okay. I also give it a three. Okay. Um, but I'm balancing that out a little bit. How so? When I first got it, I thought this was like a four, maybe mm-hmm. a five. Like it does, it looks very juvenile to me, the yeah. cover. Once I finished the book and I, I realized who the people were on the cover, and it's, there's Nico, looks kind of cool, something weird looking about him. And that's Formio, and then behind him in dark and almost complete shadow with a scary look on his face is, is Gorgio. Once I realized that, then I was actually like, it was sort of emotionally resonant looking nice. at the cover. Nice. Which was the exact opposite of the Aguiar situation in which I loved it and then learning what it really was, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I can make it work. Right, right. Um, but this one, I was like, yeah, it's awful. And then I learned and I was like, oh. Three? We agree on this. We do. <laughs> All right, so let's give it a ratings. You go first. Yes, you go first. No way. I've gone first to everyone. This isn't happening this time. How many Gorgons do you give this book? Wait, what is, what's the guy's name? Do you know? Gorgon. No. Gorgios. Oof. Gorgs. Okay, I give this... Oh, fuck, I should think about this before. 7 out of 10. Fuck. That is my exact rating. Is it? Yes. Okay. But All now right. it looks like I'm copying. Oh, it does. Well, it's actually better, because if I'd gone, you would have said 6.7. <laughs> you can still do that. That's the... It's what's nice about going second. No, but I'm being honest. I give it seven. Now explain. I mean, I think the second half did a lot of work, but the remnants in my mind of the writing in the first part didn't really work. I mean, it it worked in spite of itself sometimes. I, I, I liked thinking when they're calling just people like bad guys and like trying to be like... And we have to remember, remember you loved that, uh, what was that, the canon joke that you referenced earlier? Oh, catapult science. (laughs) Catapult science. That's so good. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's just like so, like at one point, like, I'm sure, I feel like there's like a 55-year-old guy somewhere like laughing at these lines. Like there's a part where he's like, Formio's in the early letters talking to him and he's like. Scott's 54 to all our (laughs) listeners out there. He's like, you haven't got a book on governing, do you? Like, I I mean, like who's writing that actually? And. But I liked and like how reductive they were with the insurgents. <laughs> I like thinking like yeah, this is Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney like writing to each other about <laughs> the Iraq War. <laughs> and that kind of worked. I mean, so the, then once the plot started turning and the writing picked up a little bit, and there were some interesting parts. I don't know. Maybe I can read like a representative passage so people get like what the writing is actually like. Okay, this is a, just a paragraph. When things are looking down, Nico's writing to Formio and saying, like, ah, oh, like, look on the bright side and talking a little bit about their university days. Look on the bright side. We may be facing the final collapse of the Empire, the overthrow of all our hopes and our own violent and painful deaths, but at least neither of us will ever have to take an end-of-term philosophy exam again, or listen to Philarchus lecturing on the precepts of nominalist theory, or eat another breakfast in Great Hall. You see... Once you put this stuff in perspective, it ain't so bad. I mean, just the tone doesn't match whatever the concrete nature of what he set up in relationship to this world. So it never jived for me. The distancing effect of like talking about your the painful deaths and like also like oh we don't have to take any exams again. It just it just mm-hmm. didn't work for me there. But otherwise, I thought you know the the turns were interesting. I liked that it was short. I liked how kind of breezy it was there. I liked like you said 
thinking about some of the even like the themes they set up was kind of interesting. I liked note like I for seeing Gorgias heading it. Um, I liked when we realized he'd just taken power himself. Um, yeah, seven. I feel comfortable with the seven. All right. What do you say? I also have a seven. Well, I'm not giving it lower because I think it like really pulled something. I really loved the insistence on um, platonic love. You know, I mean, I did like <clears throat> the fact that these military letters were so couched. I mean, a lot of that was cheesy, but later in in real expressions of affection and and you could feel like them longing for each other. At least Nico longing for them, and the fact that even when he's blinded and alone, he's just wondering if they really like him makes me sad. Although that last the last letter was pretty self pitying, but. Mm-hmm. He was blind, so he gets two. Sorry, blind people. <laughs> but I can't give it I can't give it more than a seven because until shit started to go down, I was just like, okay, what is this book? Zoning out all the time. And because it's so slim that I feel like more than a seven. Like people have to write at least a, a You have to write at pages. least eight hundred pages <laughs> to get more than a seven. Not really, but um even here I feel like they're trying to they're padding it a little bit. Like, just the heading on each of them. But, like, some pages just wouldn't... They'd skip stuff? Like, there didn't need to be a oh. page where they didn't have anything. Wait, final question. What did you think of the use of real purple? Like, purple text? <clears throat> that was <clears throat> that was all right. What I did like, did you notice? I bet you, you might not The have. darker with the moonshine purple? Uh, yes. Yeah, I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> all right. They did get... The purple did get darker. I actually thought that was... Um, really dumb (laughs) yeah the whole purple thing when i first started the book i was like i can't read this (laughs) but then yeah and then when they did that i was like oh my god like stop i can imagine kj i can imagine kj parker like talking to his publisher like it's really important (laughs) that it's a darker purple later on they're using different inks so yeah but seven Seven sounds good. We agree our first time. We agree on a seven. And we agree now to only do books that are under 100 pages. Yeah, that'd be nice. Have anything else you want to say? We never actually addressed the fact that we're, we read a different book than we said we were going to do last time at the end. Oh, we did. Um, there are a lot of people who had read the other book in preparation. Alandria? Yeah. We're still going to do Alandria, so don't okay. worry. It'll be there. But um, this one, it, it wasn't my choice, but when Scott saw that purple ink... Nothing could stop him. (laughs) Join us next week when, unless I'm lying to you, you'll never know now, we're going to read The Alien. (laughs) We're going to read The Martian by Andy Weirkat. (laughs) And with with special guest... With special guest, Christina Jensen (laughs) of Buenos Aires. Yeah, yeah, she's going to have a strong accent the whole time, so get ready. She needs to keep that up. Mm -hmm. But she's very foreign and illustrious, voluptuous, deciduous, easy, a chrysalis. She's the chrysalis of of many different types of flowers. Presumptuous. Little Miss, Little Miss. Little Miss, Little Miss, Little Miss. Can't be wrong. Remember that song? It's pretty good. Is that Ace of Base? 